Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Andrew Fulg on the topic Humane Vitae. This March 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Andrew Fung is a Sydney-based GP and Catholic apologist specialising in marriage and bioethical issues. Humane Vitae is probably the most controversial of the Church's documents in recent times. It provoked a storm of dissent unparalleled in the Church's history. It was to become the most divisive of any papal document with a great divide against those for and those against contraception and ultimately those for and against the teaching and authority of the church, the church which Christ founded. Now the title of this talk is Humano Vitae, Sign of Contradiction. I'm actually inspired by two, two sources. Firstly, the encyclical itself. When Pope Paul VI foresaw the negative reaction to his so-called anti-contraceptive, anti-birth control encyclical, and he writes, the church is not surprised to be made, like a divine founder, a sign of contradiction. The secondly, it was inspired by a book, the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Sign of Contradiction. This was actually the title of a book written by the great anti-Nazi fighter, the great Catholic philosopher, Dietrich von Hildebrand. And it was a defence of Humanae Vitae within the very same year of the Pope's encyclical in 1968. Now I'm going to break up my talk into three parts. Firstly, we're going to discuss the background to Humanae Vitae, what led up to it. Secondly, we're going to discuss Humanae Vitae itself. And thirdly, we'll discuss the reaction the aftermath of Humana Vitae. With my talk on the background, this aspect of the background of Humana Vitae, we're going to see how Catholics themselves have contributed to this sexual moral mess that we find ourselves in today. But let's just turn back the clock to the 1960s. It was a time of successful rebuilding after the Second World War the time of the baby boomers and population explosion. TV had just started and it became the all-powerful instrument of the mass media and, of course, of propaganda. It was the time of the Cold War. President Kennedy was just assassinated in 1963, just five years prior. It was the time of the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, a time of rebelling against authority, a time of sexual and counter-cultural revolution in the West. Free love, sex, drugs and rock and roll culminating in the Woodstock Festival in 1969, a year after Humana Vitae, a hedonistic hippie rock festival. I could describe it in much more lurid terms, but I won't. The oral contraceptive had just been developed and released and now we're going to discuss how the pill came to be, which I think is very informative to the overall understanding of Humana Vitae and what happened afterwards. Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger, you could say, is the mother of the sexual revolution. 
Some would even call her the mother of modern society today. She actually wanted to free sexual expression from traditional morality, to break its connection. And she wanted to use it for so-called spiritual illumination and self-orientated sexual fulfillment. She believed that a woman's satisfaction was more important than any marriage vow. And she writes, the marriage bed is the most degenerating influence of the social order. She's writing this way back in the early 20th century, decades before Humano Vitae. And she writes, the Catholic Church's view of contraception enforced subjugation by turning women into a mere incubator. She wrote that in Women Rebel in 1914. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Women and the New Race in 1923. Let's look at her background. Margaret was born in 1884 to a lapsed Catholic father who was an atheistic socialist and free thinker and she was born to a Catholic mother who unfortunately stopped going to Mass as soon as they got married. Margaret was baptised and confirmed in the faith, but it collapsed under her father's negative influence. Eventually she became a socialist like her father. Her mother died at 50, worn out after 11 children and 7 miscarriages. And she eventually said to her father over her mother's coffin, you caused this Mother is dead from having too many children. Getting the background, the idea of who Margaret Sanger was, what she became. She eventually became a nurse. And then she experienced what would be the major formative influence in her life. She attended a young Jewish woman, Sadie Sachs, after a self-induced abortion. Sadie had three young children, obviously felt she couldn't cope with another. And Sadie begged the doctor to do something to stop this from happening again. The doctor suggested to her husband, sleep on the roof. Not long after that episode, Margaret attended Sadie for the second time and for the last time because she had died after her second self-induced abortion. Such a formative experience for her when so young. So she became convinced then of searching for the magic pill to prevent all this, the perfect contraceptive. In 1913, she actually separated from her own husband. And in 1914, she launched the Women Rebel. And it was like a declaration of war on the traditional family, on traditional morality and coincided with the outbreak of World War II in 1914. Isn't it very interesting? And she had a slogan in this magazine, No Gods and No Masters. Very reminiscent, isn't it, of Lucifer's cry, Non Serviam, I will not serve. She coined the term birth control, but she had other agendas on her mind. The purpose of birth control was, 
quote, create a race of thoroughbreds, to create a race of thoroughbreds. Racial purification through awarding sterilization. She referred to immigrants and poor people as human beings who never should have been born, unquote. She was racist. She wanted to exterminate the Negro population. She believed in eugenics, quote, more children from fit, from the fit, and less from the unfit. Can you see some of these ideas that are very current today in modern society? Sanger became convinced of global overpopulation. And with the zeal and evangelical fire that would rival St. Paul, she embarked on a one-woman crusade to change anti-contraceptive laws in America and spread the, the gospel of birth control. She lectured to anyone and anywhere who would hear her message of birth control, including church halls. As her son Grant put it, mother was seldom around. She just left us with anybody handy and ran off. We don't know where. In 1921, she founded the American Birth Control League. You know what that became? International Planned Parenthood Foundation, the largest abortion provider in the world. <coughs> so successful was her campaign that in 1930, at the Lambeth Conference, the Anglican Church changed its position on birth control. <coughs> Other Christian churches <coughs> follow suit. Interestingly, in, 15, in 1951, an Austrian chemist, Carl Gerossi, invented a progesterone pill, which could have been used as a contraceptive. But he wasn't actually interested in its use as a contraception. For contraception. Finally, decades later, in the 70s, she met a scientist, George Pincus, and he agreed to help find the hormonal contraceptive that Margaret had been longing for. <coughs> Eventually, Margaret got funding for the research from a wealthy widow, McCormack. Pincus then joined with one Dr. John Rock, a daily mass-going Catholic, a gynecologist who organised the clinical trials for the pill. And in the course of those trials, and many of them, the women experiment on with poor Puerto Rico women, two of them actually died as a result. Now, Rock was an interesting character. He always believed the advice of his hometown priest. Rock, John, he said, always stick to your conscience. Never let anyone else keep it for you. And I mean anyone else. Conscience would become the catch cry of those who rejected Humana Vitae years later. Haven't we heard that word, conscience? In 1931, Rock launched, signed a petition to change anti-contraceptive laws in Massachusetts. In 1936, he was the first doctor to open a clinic to teach the rhythm method to Catholic women, to all women, after the Vatican approved it. 
But Rock believed in birth control because he'd seen so many women suffer from poor health after multiple pregnancies, so there were genuine motives in his heart. He believed birth control could prevent poverty. But he too also came to believe in global overpopulation and the need for world population control. In 1959, the pill was finally released by the Federal Drug Administration for menstrual problems. So they developed the pill and it was finally released for menstrual problems because you weren't allowed to use it for contraceptive, contraception at those times. But that became the excuse for contraception. Rock and Pincus had at last found Sanger's magic pill. It's interesting that actually Rock believed the pill should only be for married women, but eventually that was swept away by Sanger's sexual revolution. Pincus and Rock made the pill mimic the 28-day cycle, the normal period cycle of a woman, to make a woman feel comfortable, to feel it was natural. But that was merely a formulation of the pill itself. A woman didn't even actually have to have any periods. She could just take the pill on and on and on and on and on without any pill any period at all. But this was just to make to sell it to women, to make them feel that they weren't doing something unnatural, which of course they were. He himself believed it was a natural contraceptive because it mimicked the body's own progesterone, the chemical which blocks ovulation. He argued that it merely extended the so-called safe period, which of course was acceptable to Catholics, which the Pope had allowed the safe period to use was okay for Catholic women to purchase birth regulations. But unfortunately, the pill actually stopped ovulation altogether. It didn't merely extend the safe period, it stopped the whole of the cycle and just created what we call an artificial cycle. What happened next? Rock wanted the Catholic Church to change its teaching to allow the pill. At age 70, he then launched a one-man campaign to gain Vatican approval. In 1963, he published The Time Has Come, a Catholic doctor's proposals to end the battle over birth control. Eventually, the Vatican took notice and Paul VI expanded John XXIII's commission to examine the issue. Now, if you know anything about the history of the encyclical, you'll know that this commission was actually divided into two camps. There was a majority report, if you like, and a minority report. News of the majority's report was leaked to the media, and the majority wanted change. John Rock, dating masculine Catholic, was elated. This is it. However, Pope Paul VI continually put forward the Church's constant teaching. The future Pope John Paul II, Archbishop Watia, was appointed by Paul VI to the Commission. And he sent his diocesan report to the Pope and it influenced the minority report. The minority report argued against change. So 
even then we see the influence of Archbishop Voltaire, which eventually fully became expressed when he became Pope. Now, what was the position of the laity in the hierarchy at this time? Well, according to Bishop Elliot of Melbourne, there was a massive campaign across Europe and North America agitating to allow the pill. Many confessors had already given the green light. Follow your own conscience. There's that word again. Apparently, even some bishops and priests were boldly speaking out in favour of contraception, and especially the pill. Other pastors were more cautious. Still others recognised the church could not change its position, because then the church would not be then infallible. If the church was infallible, you can't have one teaching one day and then change it the next day. So if it can, if the church can, she can change her mind, then there's no infallibility in the church. A Holy Spirit of truth cannot change its mind. As you can guess, many Catholic women were already on the pill at the time of this announcement. And in 1965, 61% of Catholic American respondents thought the church would eventually approve birth control. That's the majority. Well, we know the result of history. Pope Paul VI didn't change the church's position. He reiterated the traditional teaching that disallowed contraception. So now we're going to look a little bit more carefully at Humana Vita itself before we look at the reaction. Okay, so now we're going to, going to go into this little document. Humana Vita means of human life. But it had a subtitle. The subtitle was On the Regulation of Birth. And it looks specifically at the issue of artificial birth control. So what we're going to do now is just discuss a few little highlights from that encyclical. Now the Pope said, according to natural law, quote, each and every marriage act must remain open to the transmission of life. Each and every marriage act must remain open to the transmission of life. The majority report, which I talked about earlier, actually argued that a couple could be in general open to life, but not specifically each and every act. And Christopher West has a particularly funny way of showing the fallacy of this by saying, look, I could be in general faithful to my wife, but does that mean each and every act must be with my wife? You see the, the faulty logic there. Pope Paul VI rejected this faulty argument. Each and every act must remain open to life. He said it is not licit, it's not allowable, it's not legal, even for the gravest reasons, the most serious reasons, to do evil, that good may follow it that good may follow it. In other words, ends do not justify the means. We know this is a most important moral principle. A good end to regulate births does not justify an evil means, contraception. Now, Himana Vita also said that there are two meanings in the marital act. They are the unitive, coming together, the joining, and the procreative. And they are inseparable inseparably connected, willed by God, 
and man is unable to break on his own initiative. And we might ask ourselves how in fact the unitive and procreative means are inseparably united. Well, I've thought about this a lot and I've come up with this. It's not strictly within Pope Paul's encyclical, but he did ask scientists, theologians, priests and bishops to do further, to deepen our understanding of this teaching and to spread it and to make it more accessible to others. But in uniting with his wife, the gift of man's seed is conjugally placed in his wife. The man's seed begins, as it were, to seek an egg for fertilisation. A man's seed, by nature, is biologically potentially creative. Biologically potentially creative. That's the nature of the thing. No matter what the intentions of the couple, that's what the seed is there, in a sense, looking for. It's looking for an egg to be fertilised, to create new life. Therefore, in uniting with his wife, the act is potentially procreative. It's always potentially procreative. Thus, the unitive and procreative meanings of the marital act are inseparably united. It's not just the joining of bodies. There's something actually real happening there. This seed is procreative. It's looking for the egg, as it were. So just as it is illogical to poison a fertile field sown with seeds for crops, so it's also illogical to prevent human life after an act of marital union. Isn't, isn't it? I mean, no farmer would just dig up his seed once he's sown. It's ridiculous. I'd go through all the effort. And the same with the marital union. And so Pope Paul expressly excluded direct sterilisation, whether perpetual or temporary, whether of the man or of the woman, and every act to render procreation impossible. And so here, the pill, IUDs, diaphragms, condoms, morning after pill, and all other contraceptives were declared immoral. However, Pope Paul did say that serious reasons could justify spacing out births. And these reasons could be physical, psychological, or external conditions. And we have enough time to elaborate our thoughts on that. But only by using the infertile times. Because as we know, a woman actually only is able to fall pregnant roughly about a week in the, in the month, a week in the fall out of four weeks. Or putting it another way, she's unable to fall pregnant roughly three weeks out of four. Now some people might say, well, what's the difference between one couple abstaining and another couple using the pill to avoid conception? What's the difference between abstaining during the fertile time and taking a pill to prevent it altogether? Well, in the first case, which is abstaining, there is a legitimate use of a natural disposition. It's something God has created. And it's okay to abstain. We are all, believe it or not, abstaining right now. Isn't it true? So, when a couple abstain, they're just merely extending the time of that period. So there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing immoral or harmful about that. It's just doing something which is natural, just refraining from the act. But in the second case of using the pill, the couple impedes the development of natural processes. It actively sterilises the inherently procreative act. There's something going right against what is procreative, sterilising it to prevent procreation. 
It's interfering with the act. But the first case, there's no interference in the act at all because there is no act being done. The goal is the same, but the means are very different. There's a big difference for waiting for someone to die. Like my father died of cancer many years ago in 1979. But there'll be a big difference for him to die of this cancer and for me to go in and shoot him. I'm actively bringing about his death by shooting him. But he died of natural causes. That's just allowing the natural process to take place versus actively intervening to bring about what you want. Yeah, sure, the same. The result is the same. But it's a very different act. One is death by natural causes. The other is murder. Very, very different means. Now let's just move on to a few points of Pope Paul's encyclical, which were timely and in some ways extremely prophetic. Remembering that he wrote this encyclical in 1968. Pope Paul VI said that the sense of true mutual love in its fullness is preserved by safeguarding the unitive and procreative meanings of the marital act. In other words, by keeping these two meanings, the unitive and procreative together, safeguards true mutual love in its fullness. What's happened today? Those who practice contraception have a divorce rate of more than 30% today. In fact, I think the latest statistics from Australia, there was 116,000 marriages last year and 47,000 divorces. That's 40%. Those who practice contraception, their divorce rate is up and around 40%. Have you any idea of the divorce rate of those who use natural family planning? It's in the order of 0.2%. That means two per thousand couples. Two per thousand versus four out of ten. So here Pope Paul is saying true mutual love in all its fullness, is preserved by safeguarding the unity of appropriative. Well, what we do when we break the unity of appropriative, mutual love just is gone. Pope Paul VI could see a wide and easy road to conjugal infidelity and the general lowering of morality, especially among men, especially among the young. Well, how true is that today? Divorce, extramarital affairs, fornication, living together before marriage, abortion, single mothers, teen pregnancy. This is our modern society. I'm a doctor. Every day I face all these problems, constantly. The cold face of society, I'm seeing it collapse. And the fact is, because it happens so gradually, perhaps not so gradually, but it's all around us, we've become immune to the shocking statistics that it is. It's even affected my divorce, it's even affected my own family among my relatives. Margaret Sanger wanted sexual license and sexual freedom, and today we have it. Her wish has been fulfilled. Now some people say that contraception reduces abortion. That's a very common argument among gynaecologists, or perhaps maybe a little bit anti-abortion. But that's ridiculous. That's like saying, I can put out the fire by throwing fuel on it. It's just feeding the fire, really. 
contraception feeds abortion. Now, the pill actually has a failure rate among single women of about 12% per year. So that means over five years, six out of ten women will be faced with the prospect of falling pregnant and deciding whether they'll make, allow this baby to live or die. So that means abortion is the backup to failed contraception. Most abortions are because of failed contraception. So that's a faulty argument. A person has been asked many times from a abortion referral after failed contraception. Pope Paul VI, just moving on, said that women, men will lose respect for women and starting to work the other way as well. Contraception stops or ignores the fertility rhythm of women. That's what it does. Without the prospect of pregnancy, women will become eventually sexually available to men 24-7. And this is obviously a, a big temptation to men to selfish sexual expression. How easy it will be for men to fail to see the woman, as Pope Paul writes, as the beloved companion, paraphrasing his words, beloved companion to love, cherish and respect. He will lose sight of her as a person. And the numbing effect of habit will make her into an instrument of pleasure, a thing to be used for self-gratification, a sexual object available any time. And we can see with pornography, lap dancing, men's clubs, uh, all the rest of it. Look at the immodest clothes and beachwear that women have to have, have the choices to, to buy and wear. There's so few choices out there among clothing. It's very different. My wife always complains to me how difficult it is to buy clothes for herself. That's, that's modest. There's so, so much of a woman's body today is exposed that should not be exposed. What about the degrading sexual practices that unfortunately many women are forced to endure in relationships, thinking this will make the man happy, such as the low self-esteem that many women have in themselves? And all because there is a failure to respect the unity and appropriated meanings of the act. Cardinal Wojtyla, when he was Cardinal, wrote Love and Responsibility. And he said that using someone is actually the very opposite of love. We can use things, but we must love persons, not use them. He called this the personalistic norm. But today, in the era of sexual morality, it's just use, 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 use. Prostitution, women give themselves to men for their, for their use, but women use men to get money from them. It's a contract. They call them sex workers. It's a terrible expression, isn't it? Sex workers. Men will lose respect for women, and the media is full of this tragedy today with adultery, fornication, defective relationships, and divorce. I think there's another phenomenon. Now, men disrespect women, now women start to disrespect men. There's this phenomenon called the cougar. Have you heard of that? The cougar phenomenon. It's the older woman going after the younger man. See, now the table is beginning to turn a little bit. This is part of this breakdown of society. The abuse of power. In the hands of public authorities, Pope Paul VI said contraception would become a dangerous weapon. Margaret Sanger actually said, couples should be required to submit applications to have a child. Actually, there's 
I remember reading one of the newspapers, one of the Australian newspapers, someone writing in saying that Australians should only be allowed to have one child, implying that governments should take control of the most intimate areas of people's lives. I mean, people talking about it today. And I'm sure we would have all heard of the one China, one child policy in China. And that's a country where Sanger's wish has been fulfilled. Women were forced to take contraceptives, the periods were monitored to detect early pregnancy, and abortions were forced on them, or extremely heavy financial sanctions, something in the order of a whole annual salary had to be paid if you had another child. I actually was in China a number of years ago, and I asked our hosts about it, and yeah, this is, this is just what happens. People just have to have the abortion. There's no way around it. Recently, however, the Chinese have reversed the one-child policy. This is such a very, very recent, just maybe in the last six months or so. And the reason is there's such a huge demographic imbalance between men and women that they're really starting to worry about the fact that their population is going to collapse with this one-child policy. So they've carried it through, and now they're reaping the fruits of that policy now. Unlimited dominion. Pope Paul said that man does not have unlimited dominion over his body in general. So also with particular reason, he has no such dominion over his generative faculties as such. And no man may visibly surpass these limits. It's interesting that Margaret Sanger said that each woman is the absolute mistress of her own body. It's my body, I'll do what I like with it. Doesn't that sound familiar? This is this unlimited personal autonomy Remember that, that guy, that parliamentarian, O'Grady, was it? The, remember we were talking about um, euthanasia about five or ten years ago when it was put before the parliament and there was this big campaign, euthanasia no one succeeded. But he was speaking before it and he said, this is an issue of autonomy, personal autonomy, personal rights. It's my body, I'll do what I like with it. Women is the absolute mistress of her own body. See right, ideas are filtering down even today. 90, 80 years later, 70 years later. It's my body, I'll do what I like with it. I can make babies without making love. Test tube babies. I can bear other couples' babies. Surrogacy. I can abort my baby. I can decide life and death for my baby. I can decide life and death for others. Euthanasia. I can decide life and death for myself. Suicide. And so today, the handicapped children, the sick and the elderly and grandparents and stuff, they're all in a very precarious position, the hands of those who care for them. And there was recently that case in Victoria of a, a daughter who killed her mother and she just got a slap on the hand and was released by the, by the court, by the judge. Slippery slope, it's all happening, folks. Okay, let's be a bit more positive and move on quickly. The positive fruits of Humane Vitae. Humane Vitae talked about mastery of self. Self-control through periodic abstinence. 
and it's possible through sacramental graces. But of course it demands effort. This is the cross in marriage, or one of the crosses in marriage. But it has positive fruits. Humana Vitae said that the honest practice of birth regulation demands that the husband and wife tend towards securing perfect self-mastery, self-control through periodic abstinence. But it demands continual effort, continual effort with sacramental graces. It leads to the development of personalities through spiritual enrichment, gives peace and serenity to families, favours solutions to other problems, and also attention to one's spouse. It helps drive out selfishness, the enemy of true love, says Pope Paul. Okay, so we've talked about the lead-up to Humana Vitae. We've talked about some of the aspects of Humana Vitae itself, document. Now we're going to talk about the aftermath, the reaction to Humana Vitae. I mentioned earlier that Pope Paul VI foresaw the negative reaction in response to his encyclical. And he certainly felt a lot of pressure to change. And he writes in Humana Vitae, it can be foreseen that this teaching will perhaps not be easily received by all. Bit of an understatement. Too numerous are those voices amplified by the modern means of propaganda which are contrary to the voice of the church. To tell the truth, the church is not surprised to be made, like her divine founder, a sign of contradiction. Yet she does not, because of this, cease to proclaim with humble firmness the entire moral law, both natural and evangelical. And so it was that Humana Vita was greeted with a storm, an explosion of dissent, including bishops and the most prominent theologians of the time, the most prominent theologians of the time, Herring, Kuhn, Chilibex, Rana, McCormack, among others. More than 600 theologians you wonder whether there's any left. 600 theologians publicly signed their dissent, headed by, guess who? Charles Curran. I don't know if you've heard of him. Charles Curran, who eventually lost his post years later as a Catholic teacher, which Cardinal Ratzinger had something to do. It included a Dr. William May. You've probably heard of him, maybe. Is he a priest? No, he's a layman. Dr. William May is a layman. It was a professor at Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College. But he recanted, he changed his mind. God bless him. I remember him coming out on a lecture tour about 15, 20 years ago to Mary, he gave a talk in Maryland. He's a very dynamic speaker, very, very supportive of the church's position. And he said that if contraception is justifiable, then perhaps artificial insemination and test tube reproduction are morally justifiable too. He writes, moral theology invented to justify contraception could be used to justify any kind of deed. How true today, any moral deed is justified. And sure enough, Charles Curran eventually disagreed with the official church teaching on abortion, homosexuality and divorce. Just follows, one by one by one. What, a, what happened to the bishops' conferences? 
the official teaching of the Church under Pope Paul VI. Unfortunately, the bishops' conferences and catechisms around the world watered down the obligations of Catholics to follow the Church's ban on contraception in conscience. Watered it down. It stressed, they stressed individual conscience. You could continue having Holy Communion and still take the pill. That was the bottom line. There was a false understanding of conscience. Conscience is meant to apply the moral law, to apply the standard of what is right and what is wrong to particular actions. The moral law says that contraception is wrong. Taking the pill is an act of contraception. Therefore, taking the pill is wrong. That's the way moral law should act. But this change to conscience, to conscience actually decides whatever is right or wrong. Contraception. I want to contracept. The church is wrong. I now decide that contraception is okay. But conscience doesn't make up the moral law. Conscience applies the moral law to particular actions. An informed and right conscience receives the moral law and applies it. And as I've said in question time, I can no more decide that contraception is right than I could decide that murder is okay and kill you all on the spot with a suicide bomb. You know Carl Newman? He said, this is in the 19th century, Carl Newman was right when he said that conscience had been supplanted by a counterfeit. Something's taken its place. The right of self-will the right of thinking, speaking, writing and acting according to your own judgment or humour, whatever way you feel. Interesting, he, Newman said that conscience is the Aboriginal Vicar of Christ. Quite a turn of phrase. Well, of course, now we have the Vicar of Christ. We're no longer in Aboriginal days. You know, it's very, very easy for us to know what is right and what is wrong. Today, the dissent in the church is largely institutionalised in seminary programs, in private advice versus the public position of the church, by dissenting in Catholic institutions like Catalysts for Renewal, Catholics for Choice, Call to Action, and so on. Theological dissent became the basis of the so-called theological magisterium. That was a term in vogue a few years ago, which tries to ape tries to mimic, tries to take over the role of the true magisterium, the bishops in union with the Pope. What happened to the laity? If in 1965, 61% of Catholic respondents thought the church would allow contraception, after Humanity's directive, that this should stop, what do you think happened after that? Practice simply continued. <coughs> By the 1980s, Almost 80% of Catholic American women use contraceptives. 80%. Almost 80%. Only 29% of American priests think it immoral. Now, of course, this is according to statistics and to, to polls, so they have the weakness and there may be inherent bias, but we still get an idea of the numbers involved. Even if it's not 80%, it's really up there, isn't it? Maybe it's even more. Okay, maybe it's not 30% of American priests, but still, even 10. So, if 30% of American think, priests think it immoral, that means 70% think it's okay. 
flip it across. Well, okay, it's not seventy percent, even if it's sixty percent, it's still a lot, isn't it? Most polls show the majority of Catholics still dissent from Himano Vitae to this day. And folks, let's not kid ourselves. People are not stupid, are they? If you can decide to contracept and still be a good Catholic, you can decide anything. Now, the so-called Catholic politicians who vote for abortion, saying, you know, I'm privately against this, but, you know, I'll vote pro-abortion. They still take Holy Communion. What about mass attendance on Sunday? In the 50s, in the 1950s, before he might have been, it's estimated that 60 to 65 percent of Catholics attended mass in Australia. 60 to about two thirds, almost up to two thirds. Okay, I've got a nod of the head there, so it's about right. It's about right. In 1996, it was 28 percent, getting down to a quarter. In 2001, nine years ago, it was 13.3 percent weekly mass attendance. Just over one eighth. So, what, two thirds in the 50s? 1996, it's about a quarter. 2001, it's one eighth. 2010, what can it be? Less than 10%? So, it's just the logic just follows, isn't it? Rock's hometown priest told Dr. John Rock to follow his conscience. So when Hamadavida banned contraceptives, he followed his conscience. He followed his conscience out of the church and died in his 90s, bitterly disappointed as a lapsed Catholic. Sarah Davidson, a writer, moved her chair closer to Dr. Rocks and asked him whether he still believed in an afterlife. Of course I don't, Rocks said abruptly. Dr. John Rock always stuck to his conscience and in the end his conscience forced him away from the thing he loved most, the church. He said, heaven and hell, Rome and all that church stuff, that's for the soulless and the multitude, Rock said. He had only one year to live. I was an ardent practicing Catholic for a long time and I really believed it all then, you know tragedy of John Rock. Margaret Sanger died in 1966. She said she wanted to be remembered as helping women. But she left a legacy of broken hearts and relationships and now broken bodies. As 50 years on after the, we have now well documented the pill's cancerous and deadly side effects. All becoming so clearly documented today. Fallen birth rate. Everybody knows that. Cardinal Schonborn, senior prelate of the Catholic Church in Austria today, candidly admitted he viewed Humana Vitae negatively when it was first released. Very, very honest about himself. But he altered his views over time as Humana Vitae proved prophetic. Forty years ago, the Vatican had forecast that it would lead to a dramatic fall in the birth rate in the West. Now, the birth rate is below replacement level in all Western countries. In some countries, the birth rate is so low that the population is in absolute decline. Russia, Ukraine and Japan. 
Now, Russia loses about a million people a year in absolute numbers of people. It's going backwards. And I believe the most common form of contraception there, it's not really contraception, it's, it's abortion, birth control is abortion in Russia today. It's going, it's dying. Literally dying. We just can't imagine Australia losing a million people in 20 years of being nobody left. I think there's about 120 million in Russia, so they've got a few years to go before they <coughs> die out completely. But it's just incredible. The Austrian scientist, Gerasi, who helped co-invent the pill, who helped invent the pill, said that the pill had led to demographic catastrophe. And he also spoke of the devastating ecological effects of, by releasing tons of hormones into the environment. And he thought it had impaired male fertility. That's a very interesting point there. All the female hormones being thrown away, you know, to go somewhere, into the wee-wees, into the ocean, into the waterways, and men have to drink it. In his native Austria, young Ast Austrians were, committed, were committing national suicide if they failed to procreate, he said. In most of Europe, there was now no connection at all between sexuality and reproduction. This is Europe. Europe's dying. Now, if contraception tried to separate union from procreation, that is, sterile union, which, of course, you know, homosexual union is a bit of a spin-off from that, then procreation, giving you life, becomes separated from union. What's that? IVF, artificial insemination. Just follows. But the church said in Hermana Vitae, by nature procreation cannot be separated from the unity aspect. So now the church says procreation can't be separated from the unity aspect. Does that make sense? So now, because procreation cannot be separated from union, the marital union cannot be separated from procreation. And that's what IVF is, isn't it? There's no marital union there. It's all artificial. So again, something's following this logic. So this church's position then led to rejection of conception outside the womb. Now further, as contraception separates union from contraception, eventually love itself becomes separated from union. And then love becomes separated from procreation. What's that? Surrogacy, abortion, child abuse. I listened to a talk by Bishop Fisher, the new Bishop of Paramount, and he just outlined the domino effect of contraception, how it just leads to all these ills in society. This is great talk. Now, a few people did support Pope Paul VI at the time in 1968, like Dietrich von Hildebrand, I mentioned earlier, Dietrich von Hildebrand. He showed the fallacious foundations of dissent and false conscience in his little booklet. He developed the nature of conjugal love, marital love between a man and a woman and its inseparable link with procreation. But more recently there's been a resurgence in support for Humani Vitae among people like Janet Smith, Kimberly Hahn, Christopher West, to name a few who've prominently written in defence of Humani Vitae. But Humani Vitae called for the problem of birth to be considered beyond partial perspectives in an integral vision of man and his vocation. 
In other words, Pope Paul VI was saying, well, this is not just the end of the story. I'm going to need some help here to develop this basic teaching. That was in 1968. No less than Carol Wojtyla has provided this integral vision of man and his vocation. Beginning with love and responsibility as Archbishop and ending with his so-called theology of the body addresses in the early years of his pontificate as Pope John Paul II. And he's reorganised the teaching of Humanae Vitae into a compelling and unified whole. In fact, he called his theology of the body an ample commentary on Humanae Vitae. That was his aim, an ample commentary on Humanae Vitae. He, he knew this was what was needed in the church to develop this teaching, and he did it. He developed a deeper understanding of why the church teaches that artificial contraception is wrong, beyond just simply breaking the natural law. And he put morality on a personal basis. That's what people just say, oh, you know, this is just some abstract law that churches thought up, making it difficult for people to live their married lives. What Pope John Paul II did, he developed a personal basis of this morality to answer the critics who say unfairly that humanity was just biological legalism. And you're forgetting the person. You know, the person is more important, therefore you can contracept. Well, he's answered that with his theology of the body. So just to give, paint a few ideas, to introduce a few ideas of his in the short time we've got left. He said that conjugal love, love between husband and wife, is an icon of the Trinity. Incredible concept. He's saying men and women in marriage is an icon of the Trinity. This is very much removed from an ordinary way of thinking about the union of man and woman in marriage. He said that man becomes the image of God not so much in solitude alone, but in the moment of communion. Man becomes the image of God more so in the moment of communion, in relationship, in marriage, than by himself. And that's why Scripture says, God says this, it's not good for man to be alone. John Paul reflects on that. Man becomes the image of God in the moment of communion. He fully, faithfully reflects the image of God in communion rather than by himself. Very, very important point. <coughs> so perhaps you could say, he was pointing to this analogy, that you have the Father and the Son and the love between them, the Holy Spirit, and you have husband and wife and the love between them that sometimes becomes a child. That Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, husband, wife, love between them, child. It's a direct relationship. That he was pointing to. And just as God is love and God creates, that was the motive of creation, out of love. So God is love and God creates in Genesis. So man is the image of God. He reflects what God does. Man is the image of God. So man is called to love like God. And he's also called to procreate. So God is love and creates. Man is called to love as well and procreate, to reflect God. But contraception is sterile love. And this union of contraception fails to faithfully reflect who we are, the image of God, the God who is love and God who creates. Because contraception says, I'm not going to create, we're not going to create, we're going to stop creation. So you're not really being the image of God when you're contracepting. 
Pope John Paul II also said, love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. That's why we're here on this earth, folks, to love sincerely. We all crave love. Love to be loved and to love in return. We all crave love relationships. But Pope John Paul II put it this way in what he called the nuptial meaning of the body. The nuptial meaning of the body. This is the body's capacity to express love. That love by which we become a gift and so fulfill the very meaning of our being and existence. In other words, we are only fulfilled by giving ourselves away in love to each other through the use of our bodies, through our bodies. Now compare the nuptial meaning of the body, that love by which we become a gift, the capacity of that body to express love by which we become a gift, fulfill the very meaning of our being and existence, to give ourselves away in love, Compare that to Margaret Sanger. Woman is the absolute mistress of her own body. It's my body for me. Yes, our bodies are ours, but we are only fulfilled in freely giving ourselves away in authentic love to others. That's why we're so frustrated we cannot love. Because that's our fundamental and inner vocation, to love. That's how we become the image of God, more the image of God in communion. Now, since the body and the person are inseparable, you can't separate the body and the person except through death, and that's not a natural state. The body expresses the person. The only reason you can understand what I'm saying and know what's in my mind is the person is I'm expressing myself, I'm using my body, my voice to speak to you. So my body expresses who I am, what the ideas are in my head. So the body expresses the person. The body speaks a language especially in the marital act of what Pope John Paul II calls self-donation. It's a very intimate act. It's a self-donating act, self-giving act. And part of this self-giving in marriage includes potential fertility, potential procreation. It includes fertility, potential procreation. And this is part of the totality of the person. You can't separate the person's potential creativity, potential fertility from the person. The contraception is a false sign of total self-giving because what contraception does is it holds back something, holds back your fertility, holds back your potential creativity, procreativity. And Pope John Paul II said, Pope John Paul II said that when the conjugal act is deprived of its interior truth, because it is intentionally deprived of its procreative capacity, in other words, when you contracept, the act of contraception ceases also to be an act of love. It's a big statement, isn't it? When you contracept, it ceases to be an act of love. In fact, what it tends to be is an act of use. Pope John Paul talked about the personalistic norm as actually as archbishop person is ignored. The only true attitude towards a person is love. The very opposite is using someone. What happens in contraception is people use each other. Contraception is haunted by a love for my sake rather than a love for your sake. By selfish self-gratification. And love will die unless purified by agape love, by total self-giving. Hence, when love dies, there's divorce. The divorce rate of 40%. Now, 
Now, Himano Vitae said that the honest practice of birth regulation demands that husband and wife tend towards securing perfect self-mastery. But John Paul II said, man is precisely a person. Man is precisely a person because he is master of himself and has self-control. What a statement. So the more I am in control of myself, master of myself, the more I am fully a person. I am living up to the potential, the full potential of myself as a person. Indeed, Pope John Paul II says, insofar as he is master of himself, he can give himself to the other. So when you are in control of yourself, when you have self-mastery, it's not for your own sake, for your own use, so that you can give yourself to others in love. An example of this ideal of love is celibacy. You might think, well, what's that got to do with celibacy conversation? Well, a celibate contains him or herself, has this, has meant to have sexual self-mastery. So there's no genital sexual expression. But that's not for his or her own sake. That's for the sake of giving himself or herself to others in another way. You see, a priest can't be having, you know, relationships with many, obviously. But in order to give himself to many people and women and men and women, he has to be contained within himself with sexual expression. has to be held within himself. Only so that he can give himself in other ways as a priest to his people. And you can think of other analogies with nuns, the certain ways that nuns can give. can give her, herself to a multitude of people through self-continent, through, through containing the sexual expression of love. Another expression of love, which is continence, not strictly so-called, but is a soldier going out to fight for a country and dying for the country. It's contain to have that self-mastery, to say, I'm willing to die for my country, it's giving yourself for others, isn't it? So the genital expression of self-giving is not the only way we give ourselves away in love to others. And of course, Jesus Christ, who was a celibate, is the example of the one who gives himself totally for all mankind to redeem us. So man is precisely a person because he is master of himself, so he can give himself to others. So this is this is where it hits the point. So Especially in marriage, there must be self-continence because if you cannot say no, your yes means nothing. You can't say no to genital sexual expression in marriage. What does your yes mean? Is it really love at all or is it lust? You cannot give yourself unless you can control yourself. That's the basic message. Now Pope John Paul II meditated deeply on the great analogy the great analogy of St. Paul. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, he says, marriage corresponds to the vocation of Christians only when it reflects the love which Christ the bridegroom gives to the church, the church's bride, and which the church attempts to return to Christ. How about that? Marriage only corresponds to the vocation of Christians when it reflects the love of Christ for his church. That's when you're living the vocation of marriage, when you're trying to imitate the love of Christ for the church. 
Christ laying down his life for the church. That's pretty tough love. Christ's redeeming love gives divine life to his bride, doesn't he? On the cross, he's giving us divine life through the sacraments. He makes it fruitful, especially in the Eucharist, which Pope John Paul II called the Eucharist. He called the Eucharist the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. That's where the bride, the church, joins with the bridegroom, the Eucharist. So the church's redeeming love gives divine life to his bride. The contraceptive union refuses to give life. That's the whole point, isn't it? To not procreate, to stop life. Therefore, contraception cannot be a sign of Christ's life-giving love for the church. It's not a sign of husbands and your wives as Christ for the church. It all falls flat. And so in a sense, contraception is a blasphemy against the model of Christ and the church for which husbands and wives must strive afterwards. Of course, the model is perfect. The ones who try to imitate are imperfect. However, we have to try. Okay, we're coming now to our conclusion. So you've been very, very good listening to the very long talk. Pope Paul VI described four characteristics of conjugal or marital love. Four. Free, total, faithful, fruitful. That's what true love is all about. Free, faithful, total, fruitful. Free, total, faithful, fruitful. Contraception is not free because a couple cannot abstain, cannot control themselves. So you knock out that one. Contraception is not total because you're withholding fertility. Knock out number two. Contraception leads to unfaithfulness, as we've seen, because selfishness is the enemy of true love. That's three bond. And of course, contraception does not express marital marital fruitfulness. That's the whole point. It's not, there's no procreation. So contraception does not express marital love because it's not free, it's not total, it's not faithful and fruitful. It's not really love, true love at all. Now, I am not saying that every single couple is in this position because some people are genuinely do not understand the issues at stake and they still feel that they are expressing love. Well, yes, it's a sort of love, but it's not the true conjugal, marital, the total self-giving love. And some people just don't know what's actually going on there as well. So I'm not judging people, don't get me wrong, but this is what's happening objectively. And this is what happens, affects the marriage over time, this element of unselfishness which just creeps in splits couples apart. Behind the rejection of humanity is the unwillingness to abstain out of unselfish love. The husband of Sadie Sachs, who nearly died after her first abortion, the husband was told to sleep on the roof. Well, he didn't abstain. So she died after the second abortion. My wife's grandmother had 11 children. And after them, his child, the grandfather, had an accident. He hurt his leg, he damaged his leg. And so he could no longer support his family. So grandmother told grandfather, that's it. And they had no more children. 
The discipline of self-control or periodic abstinence is the mastery of love, sacrificial love, the mastery in love. This is what John Paul II says in Veritas' Splendor. But what are the concrete possibilities of man? And of which man are we speaking? Of man dominated by lust? Or of man redeemed by Christ? This is what at stake. The reality of Christ's redemption. Christ has redeemed us. This means that he has given us the possibility of realising the entire truth of our being. He has set our freedom free from the domination of concupiscence. And if redeemed man still sins, this is not due to an imperfection of Christ's redemptive act, but to man's will not to avail himself of the grace which flows from that act. In other words, Jesus Christ has died on the cross and saved us, and has given us all the graces we need to practice true love, to overcome lust and concupiscence, lust and concupiscence in our lives. So if we still go on sinning, despite the fact that Christ has died on the cross, it's not because Christ's death couldn't do it for us, it's that we don't get the grace from it, we don't avail ourselves, we don't take ourselves to the sources of grace to receive them, confession, communion, prayer and so on, graces of marriage. We don't use the graces that are there to be able to become free, to overcome our lusts. In conclusion then, to the man redeemed by Christ who knows that love is not lust, humanity vita offers a challenge, freedom, liberation from lust, mastery of oneself in the pursuit of unselfish love. But to the man dominated by lust and to the world with its personal autonomy, it's my body and I'll do what I like with it, the world sunk in sameness and sexual revolution that thinks lust is love, that treats human beings as things to be used, not persons to be loved, Humana Vitae and the Church, the Church Christ founded, stands more than ever as a sign of contradiction. Ladies and gentlemen. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Andrew Full. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.